Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 396 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Peter Bogosian. He's a philosophy professor at Portland State University and author of the book A Manual for Creating Atheists. Together with James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, he published a series of intentionally ridiculous papers in academic journals in order to show that editors care more about ideological conformity than intellectual rigor. As you might imagine, this did not go for well with many of his colleagues. And we'll be speaking with him today about his obsession with science fiction TV shows and about his new book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, which he wrote with James Lindsay. And now here's our interview with Peter Bogosian. All right, so we're here with Peter Bogosian. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, David. So how did you first get interested in science fiction? Oh, this is one of my... Uh, all right, well, you're talking about science fiction. This is one of my favorite topics. It could be a long podcast. Um, it's a hobby of mine, and I've liked it ever since I've been a child. I used to watch the old Lost in Space, and then I used to read a ton when I had... Now I consume... I, I watch my science fiction movies and TV and I read nonfiction, but ever since I was a child, I've just, it's just always been my, my passion, my hobby. Did you, uh, were your parents into it or teachers or friends or anything? No, in fact, they always found it to be bizarre. Um, if I, if I can tell a little story to help, yeah, sure. to help in this, my, my mentor was a fascinating guy by the name of Frank Wesley. And one day my son, I brought my son over to his house and my son was hungry and my son so we're looking at his, around his house for something to eat he had nothing to eat he had only some bananas in the cupboard and i said uh no he doesn't eat bananas he said no no he'll eat this banana so he took the banana and he cut out with a knife a long rectangular strip peeled it away took a spoon carved out a little banana put a little bit in his mouth, handed my son the spoon, and then my son ate the whole banana, and I was flabbergasted by that. And I said, Frank, how did you know he would eat the banana? You know, why did he eat the banana? And he said, not only do I not know why he ate the banana, he doesn't even know why he ate the banana. And I thought there was something incredibly profound in that. Like, we don't know why we like what we like. I have no idea why I like what I, why I'm obsessed with science fiction, TV and movies. I have no, it's just a, I have no idea why certain people, there may be a biological explanation of sexual proclivities. I have no idea, but the, the desires and wants, et cetera, we really have no idea why we like these things. I have no idea why I like science fiction so much. But, but so you were saying that people thought you were weird for liking science fiction? Growing yeah, up? I think. Yeah, I think it's it's a weird hobby to have, you know, it's like, I, I don't, I mean, you know, who do I talk to about my, my hobby and who am I going to, you know, it's just, it's kind of a weird thing for a 53-year-old adult male to, 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 nobody really wants to talk about it. But then when you meet somebody who has the same hobby, I suppose it's like, you know, model trains or anything, you just sit there for hours on end talking about your hobby. So um, it's an, it's, I will admit it's an unusual hobby. Yeah, well, I want to talk about science fiction, so... Well, let's, the right then you, you've, you've met the right man. <laughs> yeah. So, so this mentor, Frank, is that somebody you met? Like, at what? how old were you when you met him? 
I met him when I was in uh, graduate school doing my dissertation. He he survived Buchenwald and he escaped and he went back to to liberate the very concentration camp in which he was interned. And uh, when I first met him, I said, "Oh, she said, you know, it's obviously you know gold standard bad. Were you were you Jewish?" And he said, "No, but my parents were." I thought that was such an interesting response. He also told me something that that was just so interesting to me. He said that the older Nazis treated him better than the younger Nazis. And the reason for that, he said, is because the younger Nazis, you know, mit Judenblut, the, the younger Nazis viewed being Jewish as a property of one's bloodline, that, that it just was something that was in you. Whereas the older Nazis viewed it as a choice and a religion. And I don't know, there was something very profound about that. It's probably a subject for a different conversation, you know, that now that Brett Stevens published that thing in the New York Times about Ashkenazi Jews and Stephen Pinker's come up with that. But there's something very profound to me about that. Is, is Frank, is he the guy in the book who had done the study on um, defect, U.S. defectors during the Korean War? Oh, my gosh. Very good. You read that book very well. That's correct. That is absolutely correct. That's Frank, Frank Wesley. His German name, uh, he was born in Germany, was Franz Wilson. But he had to change that because if he kept the name, that he said, can I swear on your podcast? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, he said if he kept the name when he went back to Germany, the Nazis would really tor- torture the shit out of him. And he told me some fascinating stories, you know, and he was picked up on Crystal Knocked. So think about this. He was picked up on Crystal Knocked, and the officer that picked him up, the officers, the German officers, didn't know how to drive. So his father had to drive him to the the police station on Crystal Knocked. But the crazy thing is about that, it's just interesting how so many movies shape our understanding of things. Like, th- there's never a question of, like you see all these movies, it's just assumed that all the the German officers and everybody just knows how to drive. And you know what is it, 1937? And that's just 1936. That's that's just not true, you know. But it's just so interesting how films and movies, specifically historical films and movies, shape our consciousness of things. Well, speaking of science fiction, I just watched Man in the High Castle season four. I thought that was just genuinely a, a really good show. Did you watch that? I we did a panel on. I think it was we just talked about season one. I'm trying to remember if we talked maybe talked about a little bit of season two too, but um, yeah, I haven't watched it since then. It's very interesting. I won't give anything away, but it, there's. I thought that that you know a lot of people didn't like season four. I really liked it. I thought it was interesting. I suppose I can't really tell you what I'm thinking about if you haven't seen it. Should I say it or no? Uh, no, no, uh, no spoilers. Okay, I won't. All right, I won't say it. Okay. Um. um but let me yeah. just let me just go back to the thing because I thought this was inter- interesting. I mean, this was in the first ten or fifteen pages of the book. This thing about the uh, U.S. defectors in the Korean War, yeah. and um, as I remember it, basically, um, you know, U.S. soldiers who defected to the North Korean side pretty much all yes. came from this one base. And so yes. Frank was like, "What's going on at this base that's causing all these people to defect?" And and sort of what he found was that. Uh, at this base, the way they were training them, training them is that they were just telling them, "Oh, the North Koreans—they're just evil monsters, and they're just awful in yep. every possible way." 
And then yep. when these guys got into the theater and they're like, I was just lied to. This isn't, that wasn't true. And it made them much, made them wonder a lot more about, well, what else was I told that isn't true? And that made them much more susceptible yeah, to one, influence. Well, yeah. One more piece though, when they, not only when they got in the theater, but when they were captured and their, their captors treated them with kindness, they realized that what they had been told wasn't true. Um, and I think, again, maybe I'm just in a reflective mood, but I think that, 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 that there is, again, something very profound about that, that Christians have lines of literature called relationship evangelism, about the way you convert people to Christ is through relationships. And I was just having dinner with a buddy of mine, and his wife, I, I don't know, was involved in some kind of vitamin company or something. I don't really know, but... Uh, she was telling me that it's really like she expected to go and learn all about vitamins, but it was all about relationship building. And that is really the key is that, pe- I mean, think about the things that you've been told in your life, your life by people who love you and care about you. And you're much more likely to ascribe to, to calibrate your confidence in the things that people tell you who love you and care about you is very, very high even if you don't have sufficient evidence to warrant belief in those things, you know, like I'll give you an example. I was, um, I don't know, I wrote about this somewhere. I can't remember where it was, but, um, my, my son wa- wanted to leave the house and it was cold. We live in Portland, Oregon. And I said, Oh, you know, get a coat or you catch a cold. And my wife's a, uh, MD, PhD professor of medicine. She said, no, that's not true. And I, and, and instead of me saying, Oh, you know, what's your evidence for that or anything? I immediately became defensive. I said, of course it's true. Right? I mean, think of the incredible arrogance and just that. Like, of course it's true. I mean, by what basis do I have to say I have no evidence whatsoever? But I, you know, the, the, speaking about science fiction, the science fiction um, reference, a thousand repetitions equals the truth. And so if you hear something so frequently, particularly if it, it comes from people who love you, that carries an emotional those things have um kind of a masked emotional valence to them and so you're much more likely to ascribe higher confidence to those so the idea for the the prison camp i mean it's not just it's not just that 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 principle universalizes it 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 analogizes outward yeah well, well i mean the thing it seems to have very obvious implications for how you comport yourself on social media because i feel like a lot of people on social media have this attitude like, you know, the the more ammo I can fire at my opponents, uh, the more effective I'll be as an activist. And so I'll just call everyone a Nazi because I'm like turn, turning the dial up to 10. What could be better than that? But it, that can really backfire yeah. if you're saying things that aren't true and then people realize that they're not true and then they start wondering if anything you say is true. Uh, if you don't need yeah. You, that that's correct. The assumption there is that they're doing that to kind of change people's minds. I think that they're doing that to virtue signal and to signal to their own tribe that they're a member. I think that they're doing that because they have a fear of loneliness and they seek a sense of belonging. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree a lot of things that people do on social media because I, I, I see this a lot, too. I mean, like people will um it's really rare you know you know you know, like a thousand people will complain about something on on social media but then like nobody will send you a personal message saying you know that's sincere and thoughtful and and stuff and and, and you would think that that would be if they cared about changing your mind that's what they would do but then they yeah, wouldn't get any and, credit for that 
you're you're absolutely correct, and and we don't get that mechanism of ooh likes and then the dopamine receptors, et cetera. And I've actually sent people very earnest, sincere messages, and people have then posted those messages and then like look at this Nazi tried to do something, and, and you know it's just there is something particularly toxic about the current social media landscape. Yeah. James Lindsay, my writing partner, said it's a who co-authored How to Have Impossible Conversations. He said. Twitter is like a cesspool that follows you. And I think there's something true. There's something true about that. You know, you don't know when you can do something under the guise of anonymity, many people, and I would, I would argue that I don't know if I have any evidence for this, but I would argue that those people fit in a certain type of psychotic or not psychotic. They have a certain personality profile. They'll just, you know, go to invective. They'll be much nastier. They'll be much meaner. But when you see these folks in real life, Larry Lessig has a piece about that in his book, Code 2.0. When, when, when you see these people in real life, they seem very reasonable, but you can do something under the guise of anonymity. You can really be a son of a bitch. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to get to the book and I wanted to get to Twitter stuff for sure. But first, I want to like get, stick with your um, science fiction uh, love for, for the moment. So, sure. so you were saying, yeah, that you just <laughs> you don't even know why you love science fiction so much. You just love it. And I do. you pretty much grew up not knowing anyone else who was interested in science fiction. Um, That's true. And and I wrote a, uh, you know, you ever read The Onion, the satirical magazine? Uh, of, course, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the guy who co-founded that is a good buddy of mine. Um, and we wrote a, a couple of science fiction screenplays together, but they never got picked up. Um, so I don't know why I love it. If, if I could wave a wand and give myself my ideal job, it would not be what I've been doing for the past over a quarter century to fight the current lunacy of the age, whether it's, you know, religious beliefs or now this insane social justice with a uppercase S and uppercase J or what have you. I just like to sit in a room and write science fiction TV all day, low budget science fiction TV shows. That would be like a dream come true to me. Uh, but I don't know why I have that. <laughs> I don't know why I have that rather unusual, <laughs> rather unusual desire. I wish I could tell you that you know something caused this in me, but I I have no idea why. So, so this this guy uh, Christopher Johnson is his name, right? Who co-founded the Onion? So how do you know him? Like how did you get in touch with him in the first place? Uh, we met uh, years ago in New Mexico, and we just became friends. And yeah. then did you? He's a, how yeah. did you discover that he was a, a fellow science fiction fan? Oh, you know, we were just good friends and we used to, you know, watch sci-fi together. And, and then we said, Oh, let's, let's write a, a script. And it, we, he has some friends in the industry and they told us, so we wrote, we wrote two or three scripts and then, um, treatments. And I wanted to write a, a, I wanted to write something for the sci-fi that I wanted to watch. Because I think that if I were to say there's one theme in sci-fi, it's, God, it could have been so much better. Like, it, it just, you know, like Sliders is a great example of that. Just a fantastic premise. And that guy, Joe Flanagan from Stargate Atlantis, was in another, he was in a film about, you know, parallel worlds. Like, I like parallel worlds. I like time travel. I like deep space. It's hard to do deep space stuff well because, you know, they're all trapped on a ship and there's a monster. It's just, it's just boring it's bland so we wanted to write we did write something that we wanted to watch and then we were told repeatedly that it was too intelligent and no one no one would no one would watch it 
Um, and that was the time around the second Battlestar Galactica came out. And that was a, I thought that was a really, really good, really thoughtful show with good character development. And, uh, you know, the, it, it was very well cast. The characters had a lot of gravitas and it was a, just a thoughtful script. But anyway, so that those, those screenplays never went anywhere, unfortunately. So I'm thinking about, thinking about writing another one, but I don't, you know, at this point in my life and, you know, I have to, there's a new medicine, which I'm uh, currently uh, wait, about to wage a full-scale ideological war. So I don't really have time to, to write a science fiction screenplay at the moment. So what what was in your screenplay, do you think, that they thought was too intelligent for, for sort of a mass audience? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't really know. It was about a, a group of people who flee a political rebellion with a piece of artificial intelligence who... who and the first episode becomes uh, sentient. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think it would have been. I think it would have been a niche hit. I really have no idea. I, I think that people consistently underestimate the type of people who like sci-fi, and I think the type of people who like sci-fi want to ask deep questions. They they want to. They're interested in how things could be. And I think that's like the appeal to Star Trek of, of some of the tracks. Um, and they're also interested in not so much the technology, but just a remarkable story that's set in a technological landscape. That's, um, that's conceivable, but yet, yet removed from their current experience. Um, and again, I think that I really do think the theme of most sci-fi, if I could say, you know, what's one theme it's, Man, that could have been so much more. I mean, I feel like the you might try send you know pitching that again because I feel like the climate has changed a lot in terms of you know you got shows now like The Expanse and Black Mirror and Watchmen yep. that are like really smart and uh, you know you might find a more receptive audience now. Yeah, I really really liked the last season of The Expanse. I thought they did a they did a really good job. I, I love the fact that they created a culture. I love the whole Belter. You know, they had their own language, and I thought it was very well acted. Uh, the sets could have been, been a little bit better, but I, I just like the fact that they they really did. You know, Straczynski, who did Babylon 5 and a bunch of other stuff, um, he talks about the importance of creating a world. Um, and I play D&D every Saturday. Today's Saturday, so we get to play D&D. Um, and I think that the key is not just kind of running people through modules so much, you know, Wizards of the Coast has tried to create these worlds. And we just put on a lawful evil campaign. I just put on a lawful evil campaign. My first time DMing, and I don't even know how long, 30 years or so. Um, but I think the key is there to create worlds. And that's what that's what I think good sci-fi does. Is It ju- it creates, it just creates worlds. You know, Richard Garrett from Origin, the Ultima guy, um, the Ultima Online stuff, he, he had, you know, kind of um, brought that idea to life too. You know, we create worlds, but yeah, maybe we'll pitch it again. Maybe we'll see what happens. It was a very interesting, I think it's an interesting story, but who knows? I don't really know what the, I don't really know about sci-fi demographics uh, in terms of, you know, what, what would be popular. It's very speculative. So who who do you play Dungeons and Dragons with? I play Dungeons and Dragons with, um, you know, who Matt Thornton is, Aliveness Ape. On Twitter, he's Connor Connor McGregor's, who's just gonna fight the cowboy coming up recently. He he uh, he's Connor McGregor's coach's coach, and he's my oh, wow. jujitsu coach. 
and uh, he we play with him, and we have a lot of people who kind of drop in. We had um, we played with Henry Atkins, a jiu-jitsu guy. We play with um, we just played a game. Um, actually, we put we streamed it on Twitch with uh, Chris Howder, which who's his coach. So a lot of jujitsu people we play with. I mean, it was interesting because in the book, uh, you know, most of the um, examples involve common issues like gun control or abortion or death penalty. But there was just one that kind of jumped out at me where you're talking about the issue. The example is um, fantasy based martial arts. And I was just curious. uh, Yeah, I guess that you have an interest in uh, a specific interest in fantasy based martial arts. I do. I think it's very interesting because it's it's so easy to adjudicate those things. You know, it's like you you just put someone in a ring and you see what happens, <laughs> you know, a comparable weight. And the key to that is that you you want to you want to see if there's a corrective mechanism. And jujitsu provides a wonderful corrective mechanism. And so often people will switch claims. They'll say things like you know, oh, this is just for health. That's great. If it's just for health, that's fantastic. Uh, but then they'll change their tune. You know, you know, it's a, it's a hard concept to grasp, but Daniel Dennett talks about it in this piece on CHMESS, C-H-M-E-S-S. If it's not worth doing, it's not worth doing well. I'll repeat that because mm-hmm. it's kind of a weird thing. If it's not worth doing, it's not worth doing well. So some people spend a tremendous amount of time doing something that's not worth doing, and they do it well. And this is a hard concept to grasp, but you, you would be better off looking at a wall than learning some of these martial arts that will take you away from the process of protecting yourself, right? You know, some Taekwondo, you keep your hands down, someone's just going to punch you in the head or, you know, whatever other fantasy-based martial arts people people subscribe to. But I, I go ahead. How do you think that those uh, martial arts got started the ones that don't work at all, you know, like what was the, Oh, they all have, they all have origin stories. You should have Matt on your, your podcast. He can talk about that extensively. They all have these origin stories. Oh, you know, this guy killed a bull or he killed, you know, 50 guys. And then we're the ancestors. And, you know, when there's not, when you don't have enough evidence for something, you have to make up for that evidence. You have to make up for the lack of evidence. Like if, if you have to, if you have, if your evidence leads you to calibrate your confidence at 70% in something, but yet you claim to be 90 or 95% in something, you have to make up that slack somehow. Maybe you make it up by these elaborate rituals, everybody's sensei, they're bowing, they're doing all this crazy shit, you know. But at the end of the day, what's really interesting about that is those people at some level know that that doesn't work and they just become dicks, right? You, 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 th- th- there's just like a weird bully vibe or, but you have to do that because you don't have enough evidence for the things that you're doing because there's no built in corrective mechanism. So jujitsu is wonderful. Jujitsu, Muay Thai, kickboxing, you know, the guy McGregor's fighting is a, has a crazy record in kickboxing. Um, you know, all of those are wrestling, Greco Roman wrestling. All those are, have built in corrective mechanisms that, you know, allow expertise to flourish. So so you can distinguish, there's a way to adjudicate those things. Fantasy-based martial arts doesn't have that. Yeah, I, I thought it was, I, I actually listened to an interview you did with a martial arts uh, podcast or something, and the guy, he, he practiced. No, no, it was, um, 
it was a, oh, it was a really small thing. Uh, yeah, Rokas. Yeah, yeah, and so um, and he he practiced aikido for many years, and he said yeah. that you know when he um, challenges uh, aikido practitioners to to prove what they can do, they say like no, like my technique is so deadly, I couldn't even show it to you because right. uh, it would just be too dangerous. Exactly, and that's one of their go tos. That's one of the things they say. But that's just a way to be dishonest with yourself. It's a type of self deception, or or it's just blatant dishonesty because they know that that's not true. Yeah. Um, all right. So going back to science fiction for a sec. So I, I was curious, you know, that you're, a, I believe, a professor of philosophy. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So did you, would you say that there was any connection between your interest in science fiction and getting interested in philosophy? I think so. I mean, I'd love to teach a class in science fiction philosophy. I have a feeling I'm not going to be at the university much longer. They're doing what they can to make me uncomfortable. Um, and they're doing a good job at it. Um so I, I, I do think so. I, I think that a lot of people, I think that there's an overlap in, um, not necessarily in philosophy per se, but, but, you know, people who really like to think about things and engage ideas is, is a general rule. They tend to go into certain types, uh, or like certain types of science fiction. I, that's my speculation. I don't really have any evidence for that, but it seems to be the case. You know, I just, I like to escape reality and I, in terms of like, you know, stepping into kind of a sci-fi world with personalities, et cetera. I really loved the show Farscape. I thought it did a fantastic job at that. Um, and the characterization was just really lovely. Uh, but, but I do think, you know, my favorite episodes of shows are always been something that is a little more engaging, a little more thoughtful and, and philosophically reflective. Yeah, so, um, cause yeah, I, I, how I kind of got interested in talking to you about science fiction is that I, I watched this appearance on something called the Mile High Sanity Project. Uh -huh. um, I was just curious, how did that come about and how did they know that you were a, a science fiction fan? Well, I don't even remember that. I think, I think I've given very few people actually talk to me about science fiction. So I don't, I, you know, I, so at this point, I really almost try not to talk about it because it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a distraction from the other stuff that I'm doing. Um, but I don't, I don't remember that, um, specifically. Oh, hey, can I go back to one thing I've been thinking about? Uh, you sure. ever watch Babylon? You ever watch Babylon 5? Uh, I, I've watched episodes of it, but I, I haven't watched, uh, oh, man. All you, you have to, you like, ab that is just a mandatory show. That is just, that's mandatory. So he, so that, well, then the the reference will be lost. But yeah, I would highly recommend that. I'll give you like twenty or thirty shows at the end of the hour that I would suggest to check out. Well, well, let me say, I mean, yeah. So I listened to your appearance on this this thing, the Mile High Sanity Project, and I just wrote down yeah. all the TV shows that you mentioned, and oh uh, there gosh. are like twenty shows that I haven't even, I've you know, I haven't watched or have, <laughs> some I haven't even heard of. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll, I'm just going to read this list real quickly. Okay, so you mentioned okay. Blake Seven, Charlie Jade, Falling Skies, Fringe, Torchwood, The Prisoner, The 4400, Space 1999, Lex, Earth Final Conflict, Jeremiah, Andromeda, Eureka, Daybreak, Continuum, Defiance, Alienation, Quantum Leap, Sarah Connor Chronicles, V, and Space Above and Beyond. And I haven't even seen, okay. I haven't even seen most of those. Some of them I've watched a couple episodes. <laughs> Well, like, you know, I, I do I'm this. a little embarrassed. Well, well yeah, so, so, so I, I talk about science fiction and have, you know, full time for a decade. And I was just astounded by how many shows there were that you would watch that I haven't. Uh, so you must spend a lot of time. No, I do. I'm, you, I'm, 
No, I'm telling you, I'm obsessed with it. I just, it's, it's my hobby. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And, um, you know, I am a little embarrassed about it. My wife at some point said, you know, <laughs> she just really should rein it in and not really try not to talk about it too much to people because they'll think you're a lunatic. Um, but I just, I don't know what to tell you, man. I just love it. I find it fascinating. And I would really love to just leave the social justice lunatics to utterly destroy the society and uh, the right-wing maniacs in the Trump administration and just go off on my own a little hut and write science fiction all day. I mean, do you watch t uh, science fiction TV every night or a couple nights a week or like how often? Um, yeah, I watch it every night. So I'll, you know, go to work or I'll write. And the last thing I do before I fall, fall asleep, um, unless it's December, um, I've had a very productive month in December. I watch, I binge watch a lot of sci-fi shows, but um, I watch TV every single night before I go to bed. I watch some sci-fi TV show or, or movie. So, I've exhausted the genre. I don't think there's anything I haven't seen, and the good stuff I've seen multiple times. Well, so I actually I wrote down what are, what some of my favorite TV shows are. Have you seen oh. uh, Dark on Netflix? Yes, yes, I liked it. Yeah, all what the else? other ones that we've covered, I'm sure you've seen. Uh, but I, give me the list. Uh, well, these are these are the, my favorites from the last few years. Like say the last three yeah. years would be The Expanse, Dark, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Rick and Morty. Yeah, so tell me about The Watchmen. What, so I, I, I finished that. Uh, I just binge-watched that. Um, what did you think about that? I thought it was fantastic, yeah. I mean, like, you yeah. can listen to our uh, review of it uh, if you want. But, I mean, I thought that the, um, the finale was a little weak. Um, but I, I just thought some of the episodes in the middle, like there's this one where you find out, I'll try not to do spoilers in case people listening to this haven't yeah, seen yeah. it, but it, yeah, it goes yeah. into the history, you know, sort of the origin story of one of the superheroes. And just the that way that it's, yeah, just, it's, it, it's, it's just incredibly interesting and artistic and the way it's filmed, it, it moves through different layers of time and memory. And I just thought it was mesmerizing. Yeah. I, I, I thought the first few episodes was like, wow, this is just, I didn't really know what to make. It reminded me of the movie existence, but like, I didn't really know what to make of it. It was just kind of weird. And then it just got on a, a trajectory that it just, it had me hooked. I will admit I didn't think the protagonist was as strong as she could have been. Um, um, I, I do. I'm trying to think of how to say this without a spoiler. Um, I, I, uh, I guess I can't say it without a spoiler. Um, but you know, Don Johnson plays the cop in the beginning in the, in the pilot episode. Um, and I liked without giving anything away. I like the trajectory of what happened there. You, 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 you've seen that in a lot of stuff post a uh, game of Thrones, um, that I've, I've really, I've really enjoyed that, but I, I the whole, again, I'm always hesitant because I want to spoil the whole rain thing. If you know what I mean, R A I N from the sky. I thought that was utterly brilliant. Yeah, yeah, no, I I thought it was great, um, and uh, I would definitely recommend you should go check out our, our conversation about it because I I thought you know I have a couple, couple panelists and I thought they did a really great job. Yeah, well uh, cast, well acted, uh, very high production values, thoughtful, very thoughtful script. Absolutely. So, do you watch a lot of uh, feature films as well, science fiction feature films, or mostly the TV shows? No, feature films to anything science fiction, I'll just devour. So, have you seen? Well, have you seen Prospect, uh, The Endless? I guess those are the two that you might might possibly not have seen on my list here. No, I don't. What year did they come out? 
Uh, these are recent, you know, the last few years. And they're sort are they of Netflix, Hulu? What are they? Uh, I mean, they're indie films. Uh, I mean, I, I rent well, them. How can I get them? Off of iTunes. I rent them off of iTunes. Okay, cool. Either email me after the conversation we're having, I'll go download them tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Prospect and The Endless are, are just great. Um, okay, cool. Excellent. Um, and then I guess I was just curious uh, if James Lindsay is a science fiction fan since he uh, has a degree in physics and stuff. Seems like a possibility. I don't I don't think so. Uh, I've never asked him. I, don't, I know that he doesn't watch a lot of television and movies. Um, he basically reads constantly. Um, but I don't, we don't, I don't, I don't think he is. Uh, oddly enough, we don't really, we don't really talk about stuff like that. <laughs> we're, we're busy talking about other things. So, um, and we certainly have never watched anything together. Do you read, do you ever read science fiction books? No, I only read, um, no, well, not, not in the last, you know, decade or whatever. I, my, my favorite book up until I stopped reading sci-fi was The Forever War by Hadelman. Um, and then the, the follow up to that. I love that, that book. I think I won the Hugo and the Nebula, but I read my, um, I read nonfiction and watch fiction. Yeah. No, there's just too much stuff. You know, there's just like, especially in this, in this space, you know, that I'm in now, there's just too much stuff to learn. You know, it's interesting. The, the whole God thing, you know, when I did the atheism stuff, this, you know, there's really, there's just, there's only so many things people can say to you. And it's, I know this sounds weird, but, it's, it, I'm going to say this and people are like, what are you talking about? But those arguments, they're not even sophisticated. They're just, you know, they're just pretty simple to understand with very few exceptions. And, but this new space of the, you know, culture war 2.0, the new religion that we're seeing emerge, that stuff is very, very complicated. It's, it has a very rich history from Derrida, Leotard, Foucault, et cetera, up, up to the application of postmodernism and, critical race theory and such and that takes a ton of my time to read in fact i was just reading um jim and helen's new book cynical theories which it that takes me that is a, a freaking masterpiece anyone who reads that will have a near comprehensive view of the current um applied postmodern political climate in which we find ourselves but anyway the bottom line is no i i don't read fiction anymore well, well, yeah. So let's talk about this new book, How to Have Impossible Conversations. And yeah, it's a um, it's a really dense book. I mean, I uh, I feel like most books I read, I pretty much get everything the first time through. Yeah. And this is one where I'm like, okay, I need to, you know, I have to finish it in time for the interview. But otherwise, I would want to slow way down and and go over this. And I'll just read some of the terms just to give uh, listeners a a sense of what's in this book. That you know, these are sort of terms you wouldn't probably be familiar with. Ultracasting, golden bridges, superordinate identities, calibrated questions, doxastic closure, Rappaport's rules, and the unread library effect. Yeah, doxastic, there's only two big words in the whole book, like two specialty terms. I think I wrote this in there. One is epistemology, which is how you know what you know, and the other one is doxastic. I think I might have even put that in the end notes, but doxastic just comes from the Greek doxa, which means belief. But the rest of the stuff is, you know, like Unread Library Effect or Golden Bridges, et cetera. The book is 36 techniques. 35 of them are unbelievably well-sourced from hostage negotiations to cult exiting to drug and alcohol programs, applied epistemology, et cetera. And the other technique is uh, um, something I've been playing with, the speculative technique. But it, it goes through literally every single thing that you could it synthesizes these very dense bodies of literature and 
breaks it down into techniques, and those go from fundamental, basic, intermediate, advanced, expert, master, something like that. Um, and it's we, we highly recommend that you go sequentially, but the point of the book is to empower people to speak across divides when they think that there are gulfs that they can't. You know, someone believes something, or this person is a, is a you know, Trump supporter or Elizabeth Warren or whatever it is. Uh, or this person believes we need a big wall or no wall. Everyone should have a gun. No one should have a gun. I can't talk to a person like this. Well, the point of the book is to empower people to have those impossible conversations. So, um, I mean, yeah, one of the interviews I saw with you, you said that you had read um, a lot of transcripts of hostage negotiators. And yeah. you mentioned earlier that... Um, and listening we, too. I listened as well. Okay, yeah. And that you form, that we form so many of our, idea, our, our ideas about things just from watching movies. And I was just curious, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do the um, do the real life hostage negotiations seem like like do, did did it surprise you or were they different from what you would see in a movie or what you would, had sort of imagined that how they, how they would go? That's a good question. They they were a lot longer because in movies you only get highlights where there's you know movies like what an hour ninety minutes maybe two hours. But these were very very detailed and in depth stuff. And there's a guy Chris Voss who write some good literature on this. Um, but no, I think it's pretty much, you know, the movies have those things condensed. You know, you want to build rapport. We talk about there about language, about calibrated questions that you mentioned. It's you ask a question that doesn't yield a yes, no, but yields, you know, like, what do you think about this? Or how is a calibrated question? So it doesn't lend itself, you know, how did you come to that belief? It doesn't lend itself to, do you believe this? Yes or no. Um, so that it was pretty much some of those things are pretty intense, you know, it's life or death and you're talking to people who aren't, who are in high stress situations. And if you make a mistake, someone could die. So how do you, are those just online or something? The, the audio from hostage negotiations, do you have to go to a library or something? Yeah, you can pretty much find anything online or you can get those, um, uh, Gosh, they're just, yeah, you can find pretty much everything you want online nowadays. You know, you can read the transcripts too. I mean, the thing that really, I would say, jumped out at me the most from the book is this quote. Um, uh, the guy says, uh, if you want to influence people, you also need to understand empathetically the power of their point of view and feel the emotional force with which they believe in it. It is not enough to study them like beetles under a microscope. You need to know what it feels like to be a beetle. And That's exactly correct. Yeah. Yeah, that just struck me so much because, um, you know, obviously it makes sense, or I think anyone would know that you have to understand your opponent's point of view, but this idea that you have to feel it, you know, you have to understand at an emotional level why they believe what they do, I thought was a really interesting insight. Yeah, and the the key there, you know, at a surface level, one key is that we walk around questioning people's conclusions, which is just a horrible way to engage the world. Not for no other reason than your own mental sanity, but you won't help people become more humble about what it is that they claim to know. You mentioned Rappaport's rules. You won't even understand what they believe. You have to focus on epistemology. So, you know, why does someone believe that? And you'll find that on most beliefs, they're not held for epistemological reasons. In other words, they're not held because the evidence leads someone to, to that position, but they're held because people in their community believe it. They're held for moral reasons, so they're held because people believe that believing that will make you a better person. Dennis calls that belief in belief. 
And many of these conversations are so difficult if they have an identity level salience. So often when people, you're having these conversations, you need to figure out someone's epistemology, why they feel it, not only why they believe it, and try to get yourself in that headspace. And we talk about exactly how to do that in the book. And you just do that with, you know, you don't have to do, go rogue or anything. Every, all these templates are in the book. You know, we've done all the work for you. I did my dissertations in prisons, and then I carried it forward with, you know, in the atheist movement with hardline religious believers and general conversations. And you can see a lot of this, this stuff online if you want to see how it's applied. But the key in all this is once you get the stuff from the book, really try to figure out how somebody, you know, what is the method that someone uses for believing this? And the key there is if someone knows something you don't know, you should know it too. Um, but when you really get in that, that headspace and you're willing to revise your beliefs, those conversations are incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. I mean, one thing about that quote that really sort of jumps out at me is I think because it involves empathy and Beatles is it really made me think of Ender's Game. I don't know if you've ever, did you ever read that? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you remember, but so in, in Ender's Game, you know, Ender, the main character, he has to fight these uh, alien insects. And he's the product of a breeding program, and um, he has an older brother and sister, and the the military, they're trying to get the right balance of empathy versus ruthlessness, and his older brother was too ruthless, and his older sister was too empathetic, and he's kind of a good balance where he's empathetic enough to get inside the minds and hearts of the enemy and figure out what they're going to do, but ruthless mm-hmm. enough to to destroy them if it comes to it. And I just thought it was interesting that that science fiction novel from decades ago sort of was getting at that same idea of of empathy being necessary in a yeah that's a, that's a really good insight um and many many people you know myself and you every I mean, unless you're a psychopath, you feel things deeply and things have a moral resonance to them and I think that one of the tragedies of the age and it's you mentioned social media exacerbated by social media is that we don't ascribe, you know, in philosophy you call the hermeneutic of charity. We don't, we don't ascribe in anthropology as well, but charitable interpretations for why people believe things or why people do things. You know, it's not that they're bad people. It's just that they have certain information and they're acting from that information. And so one of the, the things that we could do to really heal our current divide and perhaps put more civility into our society, which in which we're, in my opinion, in desperate need of, is just stop walking around assuming everybody has bad intentions, you know? People feel things very deeply, and they have beliefs that you might not agree with, but you might even find them odious. And the more odious you find them, the more important it is to really try to figure out, okay, where are they coming from, and why are they believing this, and what does this mean to them? And, you know, what am I missing? Like if I had, if I had, my mentor used to say to me, Frank, you know, if I had your uh, life experience and your genetics, I'd be doing exactly what you're doing. In other words, when you take the ghost out of the machine, the spirit, the soul, et cetera, we have a kind of mechanism, a kind of, it's not necessarily that the universe is mechanistic or what have you, but it's the people don't really choose their beliefs in terms of this global freedom to which we ascribe belief choice. Often it's post hoc ra- rationalizations. You know, they they have a feeling first and then they seek things in their epistemic landscape to justify that feeling. And so if anything, that 
should should call people to be more compassionate when they're having conversations with somebody. You know, like if I if I had your genetics and your upbringing, I I wouldn't be in the savannah right now throwing you know spears at gazelles or whatever. I'd be talking to me on the phone right now. Well, it's funny, you know, I was going through some of my old tweets the other day, and I came across this tweet where I, I, I said, and this was years ago, I mean, it's gotten so much worse since then, but I said, you know, I feel like on Twitter, if I said the most innocuous thing, you know, a nice weather today, all the responses right. would be like, why don't you care about skin cancer? Like, who's paying you to say right, that? Right. Like, you know, it's it's just this incredible paranoid, you know, echo chamber feeding frenzy sort of thing. Yeah, it's the kind of cultural derangement. And I think that the key to figure out how to navigate that is, and and I don't know that this is an age thing, but I think it may be. I think the thing is to figure out whose voice doesn't matter. And I was just talking to Helen Pluckrose about this. We did grievance studies, grievance studies stuff together, and she will engage people who are clearly bad faith actors. I'm not a fan of using the word faith in that way, but I don't really have any other word to use that they're clearly malintentioned. They're clearly griefing her. They're clearly intentionally misunderstanding what she's saying. And then she's such a lovely human being that, you know, she'll just spend so much time trying to correct these misunderstandings. And I will tell her like, you know, Helen, their voices just don't matter. They're griefing you. They're trolling you. They don't even use their real names in their accounts. So when you figure out whose voice doesn't matter, you know, and, and there really is a kind of tragedy to that. And the tragedy is that, you know, talked about the martial arts before, et cetera. We all need these corrective mechanisms. We need to keep our own beliefs in check. And one of the ways that you do that is that you listen to when people say, hey, you know, you're out of line about this or you're wrong. But when we have everybody calling us a Nazi or telling us we should care about skin cancer instead of posting about this, it's hard. There's so much static that it's hard to really give yourself an opportunity to correct your cognitions and beliefs, you know, to retether them to kind of in some lawful way to reality. So the only thing you can do is you just have to ignore these people. There's just no other way. I mean, you, look, you can't you can't listen to everybody who's calling you a Nazi. You know, if you have a substantive criticism to make, you can make it. And one more thing, I mean, the tragedy, the, the real, the, you know, even the tragedy, what's really grotesque about that is that if you really parse those out and you look, a lot of those people come from the academy. They're like professors or, you know, they're scholars and things. And we train these people to not make arguments and instead, you know, just hurl invectives at people. Sorry, go ahead. You were saying? Oh, I was just saying, I mean, one thing that I just as an experiment that I've kind of been doing on Twitter is that I basically follow anyone who's the target of any sort of um, pile on or, um, you know, cancellation attempt or anything. And just because yeah. I'm kind of curious, you know, uh, to track, you know, how do they respond, what happens to them long term and things like that. Um, and, I, you know, I can always unfollow them later if they turn out to be a truly odious person or whatever. But I, I, I just think it's interesting. And I just wonder if if enough sort of if a critical mass of people took that approach, if uh, if all these things would lose their bite because, you know, so, someone would, would go after you and say all these nasty things about you. And then a certain number of people would unfollow you. But then, a, you know, maybe a proportional number of people would follow you just out of sympathy uh, on principle. And, you know, people wouldn't you know, people would sort of lose their enthusiasm for these attacks because they would see them as ineffectual. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Abe Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's, you know, someone said to him allegedly something to the extent of, oh, 
he's a really horrible person, and I think he's a horrible person. I have to get to know him better, you know, and maybe correct that perception about them. Most people are simply not horrible people. But what we have is we have a small number of hyper-vocal people who, as Dave Rubin was saying, a lot of these people probably have sock puppet accounts or – and what happens is they're just so hyper-vocal and they've managed to not only do this on Twitter and such, but weaponize mechanisms designed for social justice with lower, both lower and uppercase SJ, like Office of Diversity and such. But, you know, they have a dis- – it, it just seems like – Plus, there's a whole psychology behind this where we take the negative things people say about those and inflate those beyond their warrant. Um, so, you know, it's it's hard it's hard to talk. I guess if someone young is listening to this, I, I realize that you've grown up in an environment in which social media is your reality. Like, I got that. Um, but my sincere advice to you would be to just take a step back and say, does it really matter that an anonymous person with five followers is calling your names? You know, really ultimately no, right? You know, when, when Twitter used to have eggs for people who didn't register profiles, you know, Ruben was saying to me, hey, when we were in LA, we were going out to get ice cream. And he said, if you're walking, if we're walking down the street now and someone comes up to you in a, in a Twitter egg cost, in, in an egg costume and starts yelling at you and screaming that you, you, that you're a Nazi and a homophobe, et cetera, you think they're a lunatic and you just run away. But yet when someone does that to you on social media, you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Or you feel you have to engage them or no, you don't have to engage anybody. You are under no obligation whatsoever to engage anybody on social media. And you're under less obligation if the, one of the tragedies of the age is that um, when we've made this move towards subjectivity and away from uh, objectivity, or at least an objectively knowable world, and that's a, a, a vestige of postmodernism, one of the tragedies of that is that we tend to. Tom Nichols talks about this in the Death of Expertise. You know, we we give everybody's voice. We equate having a platform with having an expertise. You know, years ago people used to criticize people on the basis of some domain-specific expertise that they possess. Now everybody's criticizing everybody, and they, they think that their subjective feelings are a guide to reality. Well, you know, can, as I said in my Easter Bunny talk years ago, conviction is evidence of nothing but conviction. Just because someone has a strong moral impulse to something or, you know, strong feelings about something, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, you were saying earlier that you, you're not sure how much longer you'll be at your, your academic job, and that seems yeah. like maybe an example of it it does matter what people say about you on social media, or do you think that you would be in the same situation without social media? Cause it, it seems like that is sort of has raised the temperature of everything. Well, you're certainly correct about that. No, I mean the, the university, uh, at least Portland state university is an, um, an ecosystem and it's an echo chamber and they have dominant moral values in that echo chamber. And, it really is remarkable to me. I think one of the things that used to frustrate me until you realize why this is the case. Um, one of the things that used to frustrate me is, wow, these people are really smart and they're institutionalizing policies, not only for which there's no evidence, but there's actually evidence against this stuff. But Michael, Michael Shermer from the Skeptic Society, his insight is, you know, one of the greatest insights in the history of critical thinking is the smarter you are, the better you're ra- you are at rationalizing bad ideas. 
And James Lindsay and I published a piece in the Philosopher's Magazine and took his insight and applied it to academic systems. So groups of smart people now, like in the academy or specifically in academia and the humanities, and it's now even spreading to the STEM fields, um, really are, are beholden to collective delusion. Just as I was doing research for this uh, this interview, I came across an article by Toby Young and Quillette. Where it's, it's called "Why I Want to Start a Free Speech Trade Union," and he lists you mm-hmm. as one of the people who might, you know, one of the situations where that might be a benefit. I was just curious if you huh. saw that article or if you have any thoughts no. about a free speech trade union. No, I, I haven't. I have to read that to to be able to make some kind of intelligent commentary on it. But um, I think that the I can't speak to the free speech trade union, but I can speak to, I think people have conceptualized this and thought about this in terms of free speech. And that's, that's accurate. There's certainly nothing, nothing in, inaccurate or incorrect about that. But the deeper and more profound thing in which we see, um, occurring is it's a, it's a, an attempt to rob you of your cognitive liberty. So it's not just, so free speech is a proxy to cognitive liberty. You ought not to think certain things. You ought not to question certain ideas. You ought not to, um, it's just, it's just, it's a really a, it's, it's a really an ugly, um, totalizing worldview. So if you, uh, if you end up leaving academia, do you have sort of a, a plan for how you'll be spending your time? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'll be giving talks. I'll be working on my next book. I'll be doing everything that I planned on doing anyway without being tormented by the administration and um, without waking up and walking into a job where people hate me and are trying to make my life miserable, which is an ideological sewer anyway. So, you know, what, what's the, the point of it? I guess I would be doing everything I would be doing without being harassed, which would be nice. Well, so you mentioned your next book. Is there anything you can say about the next book? My next book is going to be about social justice. Um, that's all I'm going to say. I, I keep meaning to start that, but then something else pulls me pulls me back. But my next book is going to be about social justice. And I truly tell you from the bottom of my heart, I would love to not think about and write about this cultural sickness that we're experiencing now. But um, it is what it is. Well, I, I think you should uh, you should spend some time writing some more science fiction because I mean, in this um, interview you mentioned, it sounded like there was a really cool ship that you had in in one of your screenplays. It was like the Bag of Marbles ship. Oh, where did that come? How did you figure? Wow, yeah. Did, was, was that that I? Uh, in, in this I in this Mile High Sanity project, you had sent them your script, oh. and they had read it, and they were asking you questions about it. Oh, okay, cool, cool. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe that better be good. Uh, the the problem is, I just um, I've passed the point of war of concern, and I'm into the point of worry about about what's happening. Not only so, so the nucleation point of all this stuff is the universities, and as Jordan Peterson and others have correctly pointed out, it's about three to five years. The stuff seeps out of the university, and uh, we see woke culture now. In virtually everything, and we see this lack of ability to have civil discourse and dialogue and communicate across divides. Instead, we see bullying, um, we see ridicule, we see everything that the society would need to drive a wedge between people and groups and individuals. Um, and and if this problem, you know, if, if I if I can ameliorate this problem, great. 
but this problem is certainly not going to fix itself on its own. I'm also deeply worried about our environmental problems and the fact that people are just valuing the wrong things. I had a talk with a buddy of mine, Tim Van Gelder, who's a um, applied epistemologist in Melbourne, and he was telling me, I asked him about the whole Australian situation and the, and the, and the fires and, and such. And I said, you know, I read a piece that, that this is about arson. You know, what role does arson play? He's like, that's total disinformation. It's totally put out. We had a really interesting conversation, and you can look subsequent to that. But the idea there is that we also have ecological crises and that those are fueled by as we've talked about fake, uh, social media and now fake news which we haven't talked about well, 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 just, just, just to be clear you're saying that the um arson is sort of a, a smokescreen no pun intended and really climate yeah. change is the the issue or i'm saying that's what that's what he told me uh i'm not a climate change expert but i'm saying that what he told me is that the arson thing was fabricated Huh, okay. That doesn't mean that there wasn't an anarchist, but that this whole thing was um, a result of um, um, of arson, and it has nothing to do with anything else other than arson. And um, there's just there's no evidence for that. It's a narrative that was put out. Um, and you know, I, look, I'm not an expert in this stuff. Read it. If it turns out to be false, I'll revise my beliefs. I'm not wedded to it. But the larger point is that we have very substantive, serious ecological problems that we need to address. The crisis of plastic in the oceans. There's just there's just too much. There's too many problems. The homelessness problem here, the opioid epidemic, which my wife works on. We just have too many problems for me at this point. I need to be in the twilight of my career before I start writing science fiction screenplays. There are just too many problems. So I can't do that yet. Well, well, let, me just, <laughs> let me just push, push back. And on then that. I got to go. I got to I got to take my, my daughter to lunch. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll wrap this up in a sec. But let me just push back on that a little bit because there's I don't know if you know this. There's this famous thing where um, Nichelle Nichols, who played Ahura on the original Star Trek, she met Martin Luther King. And she said, yes, she I remember that. That's a great story. Thinking about leaving the show. And he said, no, no, you can't. It's what you're doing is too important. And that the science fiction can be a, a, you know, a vehicle for changing the world. And, you know, in addition to writing articles and everything else. Yeah, I would, I would hope that's the case. Here's the next um, step in the move in the space I'm in. The next step is to go Douglas Murray's book, took it to the gates. Um, the next step is to walk right into the Academy and call it out, uh, particularly call out colleges of education, which Lyle Asher has done. And, you know, the, all, all of the colleges of, of education are predicated on one book, Paulo Freire's Pre The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. He's a Brazilian educator. It's about remediating oppression and, and teaching um, to that end pedagogically. Certainly nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's, it, at, at its core, it's probably important. But the next step is that this has to be engaged directly at a unit at a, a level so that pre-service college teachers teachers and, and colleges of education have at the very least an alternative and not just an alternative narrative but something that harkens back to you know ancient values socratic values this is what truth is this is what epistemology is this is what the scientific method is this is how you differentiate back from opinion like shit that should, people should already be be taught but the whole system is so ideological it's gone utterly off the rails right now so yeah, well, cool. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think uh, I think we should start wrapping this up there, and I'll let you go. And I just want to thank you so much, Peter, for for giving me so much time to talk to you. And uh, I really enjoyed this book. It's called How to Have Impossible Conversations: A Very Practical Guide by Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay. So, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. 
Cool. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Peter Bogosian for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.